This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. My new emergency alert system, and we've been talking about this, and I believe it was exercised uh, in the United States as well. Well, it's been, uh, it is a system that is being used down there and uh, has been uh, used quite uh, recently. A new emergency alert system that transmits messages to cell phones is in the works for Canada. It would be used for serious concerns such as dangerous storms, possible terror attacks, uh, that sort of thing. And we've all seen what the system that we have in place now for Amber Alerts, where uh, they started linking those up to our uh, the cable systems and you're watching your favorite show or whatever and all of a sudden, brr, the message comes across and so on. Why don't we just hook this up to cell phones? Is this the way to go? Mark Coma is with us, Vice President Communications and Strategy for the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association and is with us now. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. What can you tell us about this system, Mark? How does it work? Right. Um, it's been in the development now stage for about two years, and we've just had the final testing in, uh, in Durham, Ontario, ended a couple of weeks ago. And essentially, when it's up and running, if there is um, in a severe storm or a terror attack, it could be used for wireless amber alerts as well. Um, any cell phone in the vicinity that the, um, the law enforcement agency that is putting out the alert, they would automatically receive notification on their phone um, about the details about the emergency. So how do you determine who gets what alert and, right. and what phones it goes to? Right. It goes to all phones, and it all goes to all phones that are in the area. Um, so how do you determine what the area is? I don't understand that. Right. What well, there's technology built into, uh, into cell phones, and the technology itself that we're looking at uh, is called cell broadcast. It's one of the technologies that was, that was being tested. And it determines, it, can, it, can, it sort of seeks out, any of the cell phones that are in the area, and it knows the, the location for that. Uh, I think it's mostly based on the, the GPS that is involved with the, uh, with the handset. And it, um, it finds those phones and sends the message directly to them. So can it target a specific area, or is some, has it got to be something that's used like a blanket and, and goes across everything? No, it would be uh, just in the, um, that are in the vicinity. So if it was something, it could be something is, you know, citywide, it could be municipal, or if it was something, it could go national or, or provincial. Um, that's one of the advantages to the cell broadcast system, is that you can target the region. So if, for example, there's a, a, you know, a tornado warning in, in Alberta, um, there really is no sense in alerting people in, in Quebec, for example, of that, of that particular uh, tornado. Now, I understand this is already in place in the United States? Right. They have a, um, a version of the alerting system in the States. Um, the system that we're looking at in Canada is a little more sophisticated, uh, that we probably would be able to send video um, and, uh, and or pictures along with that. In the States right now, you, what people receive, it's similar, it looks similar to a text message, but it's just, just text. So, for example, the um, terror alert that was sent out uh, a few weeks ago in the, in the U.S., uh, they weren't able to actually send out any visuals with that. It was just a message for people to, um, you know, go online or, or check, check other media uh, for more information about what the, uh, the, uh, the alert was about. And who would operate this? Whose responsibility is this? Right. Um, and that's some of the things. The, uh, the CRTC is currently looking at a consultation on, on the details of this. Uh, but generally, um, you'd be looking at law enforcement agencies that would be, uh, that would be responsible for, for issuing the alerts. So very similar to how an Amber Alert is issued now. 
That's right. And uh, we actually run the, the wireless Amber Alert program. People can receive wire uh, text messages on their phone right now when, they are, when there is a, a, an Amber Alert. Um, and it's opt-in, though. It's something that people have to go to the uh, website, wirelessamber.ca, and you can sign up to receive those alerts in your, uh, in your area. Um, with the, um, the public alerting system that we're looking at now and the one that is in the U.S., um, it isn't on an opt-in basis, so you're, you're automatically um, going to be receiving those messages. Right. Th- these are some of the details that still have to be, uh, be worked out. Um, you know, what kind of sound or alerting would, be, would people have, and would they be able to opt out of these? Um, these so there are, there are many details that still have to be worked out, but the technology, um, as far as I know, um, it was all systems go, and everything was great with the, uh, with the testing that, was, that took place. How did you talk a little bit about the test in Durham? What do you know about that, and and how do you test for such a thing? Right. Um, that was done with a, a very specific control group. So there were a group of um, cell phone users that actually um, knew that they were going to be a part of this. And then the, so that, I mean, obviously you can't just start sending out random alert right. messages. <laughs> um, and so uh, then those people that had signed up or that were chosen to take part in the, uh, the pilot program, um, then they would uh, receive these, uh, these alerts. And it was done through, uh, through the uh, wireless carriers as well as, uh, you know, emergency, emergency management um, uh, groups and the government of Ontario as well. So there are a lot of, a lot of people that were involved in that. Uh, are we behind in this game? Why is this happening now? Um, well, not really behind. We have been looking at this for, um, uh, like I said, for about two years. It is available in the um, in the states. The, the program there, it's it's a voluntary system. So um, wireless carriers, they don't have to um, carry this technology. A lot of them them are doing that. Um, as far as we're concerned with the uh, the wireless carriers, we we believe that um, it should it shouldn't be a voluntary. That all wireless carriers in the country should be mandated uh, to to offer this service. And what about the cost? Who would pay? Is there much cost involved in setting this up? How does it all, uh, there is. and who um, pays for that? Yeah, um, just on the, uh, I can't speak for any of the, you know, the law enforcement side of the, uh, of the, uh, the program, but in terms of the wireless carrier side, that developing the technology, um, we're estimating it, it's sort of a, an investment of around $25 million. And uh, is this something that the government pays? Is this something that, that subscribers help pay for? Is this something, something that telecom pays for? The telecom is going to be paying for that part of it, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's an advantage for them, though, is it not? It must be. I mean, it's obviously using their service more. Right. I mean, and there, there would be no charge to, re, uh, you know, to um, for the uh, to the end user with when you're looking at these alerts. Um, but the wireless carriers, I mean, you're always investing in, in technology, and yeah. just with 911 and location information, we've come so far. Um, I mean, any time that uh, you know, you uh, someone can use your technology to you know keep Canadians safe, um, I don't really think there's a question that that someone's not going to make that investment. Uh, how do you determine what is an emergency and, and what gets put across? I mean, obviously, we've seen uh, issues with the Amber Alert, which started last year, going across uh, various cable systems and such. And obviously, I think everybody agrees it's a great idea. There still has to be some bugs worked out. Right. Uh, how do you determine what, uh, again, is it the same sort of similar process? Right. And there will have to be a, a process uh, put in place. 
Um, and again, those are the kinds of details that once the CRTC has made a decision on the on the technology and the implementation rollout, um, there are some of these issues, like like you just mentioned, that, that would have to be worked out. What is the criteria and who is going to be responsible for sending those messages? So th- those kinds of things still have to be, uh, be worked out. Is this just something that is done by each province or is this a Canada-wide thing and should it be universal? Right. Um, we're pushing for it to be um, right across the country. I think um, if you're, you know, if you're going to be rolling it out in certain regions, then people are going to have advantages and things like that. Um, but we do have wireless networks that are national in, in Canada. Uh, so from from our point of view, we would really expect and we would like to see the system uh, rolled out on a national basis. But then again, just sort of, I guess, managed on a provincial basis, obviously right. depending on what the situation is. Exactly. Uh, how? What about timeline? How far away are we from all of this? Um, well, we're still waiting for the uh, the CRTC to make their final decision on the uh, implementation, um, which we uh, fully expect. We would hope that's going to be in the, in the next few months, um, and it would be, I think, um, within 24 months. I think that we would like to see a system up and running uh, sooner, if uh, you know, if we can get all parties uh, to you know to play their role. Um, but I think within 24 months, we'd be safe to say that. We, would, we could have a system up and running. And will there be more testing involved? Will there be more test cities? Oh, certainly. I think there will have to be um, when, the, um, when, the, when everyone has decided on what kind of technology is going to be used. Uh, there will still have to be more, um, you know, more testing involved in that. Uh, but uh, from the uh, results of the um, testing that we've seen so far, um, it looks like it's, uh, it's, it's working quite well. What about public education on this, Mark? Because I remember when, uh, I remember the time the first Amber Alert came across uh, our TV at home and it scared the bejeebers out of me because right. yeah. it was so loud and, and nobody had any idea what, it, what was going on, right. which of course created a lot of stir over the next week or two. Is right. there going to be a proper public education system right. on this? I think you're right. I think there were uh, you know, lessons learned from that. And, and of course, I, we would fully expect that uh, citizens would be uh, would be informed exactly how um, the system works and what the, what they may expect uh, if there is an emergency in their area. And would this, or does this have the capability of becoming interactive? That you take it one step farther than this? Is that possible? Um, that the people would be replying to messages or like finding where information was. I mean, links that are there, all that sort of thing. Right, and uh, that's uh, that's one of the uh, the advantages that I mentioned before. Because our, our the technology that we're looking at for our system is a little more advanced than what they do have in the United States right now. So these are the kinds of things that that could be built into the system. Um, I don't know specifically if we're looking at any interactive um, uh, steps, you know, for the initial role of, of that. But certainly, again, uh, I mean, technology it develops at the speed of light. So uh, certainly anything might be possible in the future. Uh, what about this system linking up with that of the United States? If that sort of uh, if that sort of communication is needed, is there, right. is, is mean, the know, possibility exists exactly. for that? I mean, if there, you know, if in a case where there might maybe an emergency that would be affecting both countries at at, at one time, uh, I'm sur- I'm sure that uh, governments would uh, would be uh, happy to look at that look at that kind of um, uh, system as well. What's been the feedback on this? Have, have has there been any negative response to something like this? No, I I really don't think so. Like I said before. Um, on the on the wireless carrier side, but even on the on the public side, I think that in any time that you that, you know that there's a chance that you're you're going to be able to improve someone's safety or, or save lives uh, because they've got a cell phone in their pocket. I mean, who would really be opposed to that? How does this not um, collapse the the infrastructure? I mean, we've often seen when there's disasters in certain areas and people are trying to call out or 
text out or such, um, that all of a sudden the systems become overloaded and shut down. How does this avoid that if you're hitting everybody with the same message at once? Right. Um, it would be um, sort of dedicated um, uh, an access system so that there would be, it would be reserved so that there would be right. um, airwaves that, that are just being used for that particular purpose. So if all of a sudden there's an emergency and an alert's put out and then all of a sudden people start reacting to the alert, it's not going to disengage the alert in any way. That's right. And that's, that's one of the uh, reasons why the technology, uh, it, you know, it, did take, it does take some time to develop and test to make sure that you don't get yourself into a situation like that. Uh, as far as the test went in Durham, uh, do we know what happens? What happens to your phone or what the signal is that, that, that they were using there? No, I don't have the details on that, uh, on that particular um, uh, test, but they are, you know, people are still looking at what kind of alert it would be and whether you'd be able to over, I mean, if someone didn't have their volume turned on, right. for, for example, would the, would the system then be able to override that so that it would, um, you know, cause, a, cause a, a sound to be heard on the phone? So these, these are the kinds of things that would still have to be worked out. But the first step, obviously, is making sure that we do have the technology and that we can get these messages to people when we need to. It would be interesting to see how they do uh, implement all of that, especially when, um, you know, when we've seen with the Amber, of Lur- Amber Alerts that come across the TV what, what they are. And, right. and obviously they're intrusive, and they're supposed to be. That's the whole idea here. Exactly. But boy, I can imagine if you've got your device on you or strapped to, and then all of a sudden something like something, something like that happens, uh, you, you'd be seeing everybody in the square move and react at the exactly the same time. It would right. be very odd. <laughs> Maybe similar to see when I look out my window here and I see in the park with the uh, people looking for Pokemon Go. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what. Oh my! The world we live in, eh, Mark? We certainly do. But again, if you can use that technology, I mean, Pokemon Go. I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to no, uh, no. Uh, to make light of it. But certainly, I mean, if uh, if it's going to be a, you know a few minutes inconvenience, uh, I think I, I know I'm going to, and I think most Canadians, um, I think they would be okay with that. Is there any place the public can go at this point to find out more information on this? Um, they can go to the uh, the CRTC website and they can follow the uh, the consultation. And also, um, I know that the government of Ontario they actually have a very good web page um, devoted to um, wireless alerting, and it talks about the uh, the test and the and the technology and has some sort of um, you know limited FAQs that, that we know at this time. A new emergency alert system that transmit messages to cell phones is in the works for Canada. Right now, we've been talking to Mark Coma. He is the Vice President, Communications and Strategy for the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association. Mark, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Can we go a week, do you think, without uh, talking about Donald Trump? Can we go like 24 hours? It seems that we can't. And... The next chapter of this saga seems to be, I guess, further proof that Donald Trump is probably his own worst enemy. Uh, now it looks like uh, Trump has, has, well, which once was sort of a bragging point of, his, uh, of the debate when Hillary Clinton questioned him on paying taxes, and he basically said it was a good thing. Uh, Trump's campaign faces a big issue with the release of taxes. Well, not really the release, I guess leaking of a 1995 filing. Uh, The documents show that Trump used aggressive accounting tactics to claim a loss of $916 million. To talk more about all of this, Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University, he is with us now. Hello, Barry, how are you today? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, Surprised here, uh, is this gonna stick this time? 
That's not so clear. Um, the, the funny thing about it, the part of it that may stick is the part that's getting the less, least publicity, not so much the fact he doesn't pay taxes, which has already been hinted at and I think suspected by a number of people who aren't sympathetic anyway. No, I think the, the challenge is for him to explain, as the uh, world-class businessman he claims to be, how he could lose a billion dollars in a year. Now, following this is some 20 years ago. Following that, of course, that's been his out, so he hasn't had to pay taxes since. But Look, there's so much about the Trump campaign that just doesn't add up. And for observers who aren't particularly sympathetic to his orientation, um, it's like he's been able to defy, to defy gravity. Um, are, the, are his voters going to forget about it? Frankly, his voters don't care about facts. His voters, I think, are more concerned with sort of sticking their middle, middle finger in the eye of the establishment than anything else, because uh, the policies he's talking about are not particularly... He, he certainly excites them with with uh, language that, that borders on racism and maybe doesn't even border on racism and, and sexism. But it's it just sort of this, this uh, unconventional counter kind of politician. It's more that than any policies that he seems to be proposing. But your, your question about uh, whether or not the tax issue is going to hurt him, um, I th- just the fact that he had a weak performance in last Monday's debate, even though he's in denial about that, and he's been unable to basically control the issues that he started off, all these little firestorms about Miss Universe since, uh, makes me think that, indeed, his progress probably has been arrested and momentum is now starting to shift back toward Hillary Clinton. Uh, d- during the debate, Hillary Clinton peppered him with questions on his tax records and, and why he should release them and such, and avoiding paying taxes, used the example of her, of her father and a, and a small businessman and such, and, and he paid his taxes all the time. Uh, Donald kind of ref- deflected that and said, well, that's a good thing. What he did apparently all is, in, uh, is, is on the up and up, that it is legal. So what kind of message is this sending to the American electorate and even his supporters? Isn't he basically saying you're kind of stupid if you pay taxes? It reminds me of, if you remember Leona Helmsley of some years ago, Hmm. talking about the fact that only little people pay taxes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this fits right in. Now, now in her case, I think the uh, illegality was much more blatant than there was with... um, with Trump, look, there's just so many things about the Trump campaign that are starting to fall apart. I mean, his threat that he's going to bring up Hillary's, uh, uh, not so much Hillary, but uh, Bill Clinton's sex life with Monica Lewinsky, it, it patterns his own. He, in fact, was openly having affairs with Marla Maples when he was still married to his first wife. And he's been having women all along. And indeed, I don't read them, but I gather the New York tabloids have documented all this for, for decades past. The notion that he can keep doing this and, and seemingly walk on water and his, his people don't care that may be true for many of them, but it, the, in terms of swing voters who are no lo- not any longer on board with him, I think he really does have a problem there. And my hunch now is that, in fact, this is going to reverberate to the favor of Hillary Clinton and perhaps Democrats down, down ticket as well. Do we know how we got this information, how these documents were leaked? Is there any information? No, no. I, it was appar- apparently there was some reference to an envelope with Trump Tower on it. But I that, heard that. Uh, no, somebody who probably had the inf- the goods on him and um, was prepared to leak it and was unhappy with the the way the election campaign is going. There are people that they may just be people who work in the offices of his accountants. I'm not sure where it came from, but there are people who, in theory, could have access to documents. Um, and if they wanted to try to anonymously be whistleblowers, uh, it seems that that's what this this is coming. This isn't the only problem he has. I think the temperament issue is still a much more serious problem for the election and the fact that he, he's you know, sending tweets out in the middle of the night over issues that are, are virtually irrelevant. I do not think, let me say, because he's threatened that he was going to bring up the Bill Clinton affairs, I don't think that's going to help him at all. He's already brought it up. In fact, he was bringing this up back last December during the early part of the Republican primary days. 
this does not change public opinion. It, it may not affect his core vote, and probably nothing affects them, but yeah. they are not enough for him to win the election. It is not helping him with the swing voters, particularly suburban Republican women, which are probably the biggest demographic category of people who would normally vote Republican, but are, are really cheesed off with him this time and are moving toward Hillary. Uh, the Times pointed out who published these documents that, uh, that Trump had not done anything, anything illegal. What does that say, and how do you spin that? Well, the, the, the laws should be changed. I mean, again, a question that in theory could come up at the, um, the, the, the debate on Tuesday night will be the vice president's, and that's probably going to be rather uninspiring. And now that the Blue Jays are in the playoffs, probably isn't going to get a lot of attention hmm. around here. But that, indeed, in the, the next day debate, it, it presidentially is going to be the, um, the town hall where just regular citizens are going to be able to, uh, to ask questions of him. Somebody might ask the question, should the laws that have so benefited him and people like him, should they be changed? Mm. Should they be changed in a specific way to provide for a minimum tax? That's an interesting question that, that could be brought up at that time. Whether this changes the election, I think there are other events already occurring. That we, we haven't seen many polls since the, uh, the presidential debate uh, just a week ago. But I think there are already events occurring, even though it's hard to document them with, with data at the moment, that suggest that, in fact, things little by little are sort of starting to slip away from Trump. Uh, these tax receipts seem to be, or documents seem to be, uh, from the period when Donald was heavily involved in the casino circuit and the whole New Jersey thing, correct? That's right, yeah. He, he lost an awful lot of money on those New Jersey casinos. And Again, his ability, therefore, to losing a billion in a year, which doesn't say he's much of a businessman, but to then basically allow him to get up, get out of jail ticket free for the next 20 years or more, working off that, or I guess it's 18 years is the period that, that this could be done, certainly shows flaws in the tax system. But uh, to think that he as president or the Republicans in Congress, or frankly anybody in Congress, is going to do much about it, because the people who benefit from those systems are the people that in fact contribute heavily to the various campaigns. Will we ever see uh, complete tax uh, information as we're supposed to on most uh, president or on all presidential well, candidates? Well, we're, we're, it's by tradition. There's not a law that says we are. Interestingly, in fact, the person who becomes Secretary of the Treasury, his cabinet secretary in that field, should he be, become president, he would have to reveal his taxes. But no, I, I suspect we'll never see them because, in fact, there's probably more pressure leverage on him now about his taxes than at any time. Once the election is over, win or lose, why, in fact, would he... Uh, would, would he reveal this information? Now is when a number of Republicans and his party supporters are calling on him to do it, and he's still not doing it. I, I suspect for good reason, because it's only going to embarrass him further. That's, I mean, that's the cat that's out of the bag. What was revealed in the New York Times uh, piece was actually lar- widely suspected by a lot of people anyway. It's just now there's more evidence of it, and it will get talked about, and maybe it'll push Miss Universe off the, uh, off the news pages for a while. But, uh, look, his whole style of campaign is such that it's just one train wreck after another. There's such a wall of deceit. I mean, it's not just one scandal or two or three or four. There's just so much of it that, in fact, the public cannot really digest it and are prepared to buy into the fact that it's all part of a great conspiracy theory by the media to get even with Donald Trump. Uh, do you think that this will continue, meaning his taxes, do you think this will continue to be an issue that will dog him right the way uh, through the election? And things like the Miss America and all that other, Miss Universe or whatever it is, uh, do you think he's using that as a distraction to stop people from talking about it? Oh, this? I don't think he wanted this to come out right now, but if it wasn't this, it would be five other things. I mean, that's the irony of all of this, that indeed, yeah, no, I think taxes will be an issue for some people. I think Miss Universe, and again, that deals with feminism and frankly deals with uh, discriminatory tactics toward um, uh, Hispanics, 
that those are the groups that are probably sensitive, especially to that issue. Uh, yeah, I think these issues will be out there, and I suspect, given the r- rapidity with which oh, these new things are, are, are emerging, the new scandal after scandal or issue after issue, embarrassment after embarrassment, um, I suspect uh, we've still got almost five more five more weeks, I guess, of this. I, I'm sure there'll be more that'll come out, and he will only encourage it, not not wittingly, but his lack of self-control, his lack of any kind of ability to to focus on issues. I think there'll be more things that are going to come out of the debates because I don't think he can, can go through a debate with any form of discipline keeping on a kind of message because there are issues that could help him but he isn't <laughs> capable of, of staying on it that was, it was my... thought a few months ago that he was a new person that he was going to stay on the teleprompter but just last uh, last saturday he was speculating that that hillary clinton was having affairs i mean he was just going it was one going down one rabbit hole after another yeah um, no I, I i i think this issue will be there and i think there'll be a dozen more that we haven't even heard of yet you bring up an interesting point because we uh, everybody was talking after the last debate uh how he did he held his own in the first part and then sort of started to last, uh, lose it during the last half of the debate and what he needed to do in order to stay focused and have success in the second debate. Um, are all bets out of the window out the window now that more information keeps coming up or, or can he can he just stay to the rules and, 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 and stay to what his handlers tell him and pull this out in the next he debate? Does, the, 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 the debates are, do not allow teleprompters, even when he's got, he had a teleprompter last Saturday. No, but I, I guess stick to the plan, I guess, is yeah, my better it, choice um, of words. I mean, I th- in theory, there's all sorts of things that a reasonable candidate could and would do. He isn't doing any of them. He doesn't prepare adequately. It seems that he doesn't have uh, an attention uh, span that allows him to really prepare. He just gets bored at one thing and jumps to another. Tony Schwartz that wrote the, the book with him. Um, the Art of the Deal. He said that that same thing some 25, 30 years ago. Um, this, there are just fundamental flaws there. There's been interesting appeals to different people. Different people seem to like this because he looks so unconventional. And, you know, for some things that we talked about earlier, earlier in, in the discussion. No, I don't think he's going to get better. I don't think he's capable of getting better. Even when he has a teleprompter in front of him, he doesn't get that consistently better. And during the debates, which is when most people are watching, he's not going to have a teleprompter. He had some some effective points in the first 25 minutes or so of that first debate. But, in fact, he cannot keep saying the same thing over and over again, and he doesn't anyway. He, he is just an incredibly flawed candidate. I suspect in terms of debate performance, the worst in American history. What does Hillary have to do not to get drawn into this? You know, I, I, I write pieces for the local, um, the local paper in the uh, Kitchener-Waterloo area, The Record. I, I wrote a piece about five months ago suggesting that if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would argue that the, the Trump campaign was a conspiracy to harm the Republican Party. Hmm. And in the off chance, I don't think it's going to happen, but the off chance he got elected, I think it would be do horrendous damage uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the Republican Party. Isn't it going to do that much damage even if they're not elected? Yeah, no, it's just that instead of having been through this yeah. for six months or so, uh, they've got four years, and he will be the focus of attention. I do not think he, frankly, I don't even think he really wants to be president. I just think he wants to win. Um, no, and he doesn't distinguish those particular roles right now. I'm, I'm sure he will try to farm things off to other people. The real, the real danger with Trump, though, is, is domestic policy, because frankly, nothing will, whether it's Hillary or him, nothing much is going to change on the issues that probably concern Americans the most. The real challenge relates to, uh, to foreign policy. Because foreign policy, the president really can do some things without having to worry about uh, uh, lining up the, uh, the congressional votes to support him. Um, that's, I, I'm not sure the world is going to come to an end as a result of this, but, um, and this is perhaps a topic more for another day that, uh, than at the moment when you wanted to talk about his taxes. But the real, the real danger with Trump is the, the damage uh, and the, the stupidity and 
uh, inconsistency, the hypocrisy of his foreign policy statements. They aren't even internally consistent. I, I frankly don't think he remembers much of anything. <laughs> We've seen it with regard to the Johnson, the um, the um, libertarian candidate saying stupid things. Uh, Trump Trump isn't particularly well-informed on, on foreign policy either. Domestically, I think he will only make a bad situation worse in terms of gridlock. He isn't somebody that... You know, you know, um, Obama gets criticized because he wasn't conciliatory enough with Democrats in Congress. Uh, Trump's whole style is confrontation and and, and threats and insults. Uh, to to imagine that Trump can get things done with even with a Republican Congress, he doesn't support a, a number of of important Republican policies. He's not concerned about balanced budgets. He wants to spend more money and cut taxes. He's not concerned about. Um, uh, the, the traditional conservative position on foreign trade. My, my point is, he's going to be fighting with, it should he get elected, he's going to be fighting with Republicans um, as, as much as he's going to be fighting with Democrats, and frankly, nothing's going to happen. That's, foreign policy is the area of real concern about what, that, what he might do as president. That's what many have said, is that there's others in his way that will stop things or him from running rampant all over the place. Uh, but that that being said, what do we know about the people ab- around him? What about the Chris Christie's and, and so on and so forth, and the people that he is has surrounded himself with? Well, Chris Christie's got his own problems with regard to that Bridgegate scandal in New Jersey. I have a hunch that Christie, he, he could certainly get appointed to a political job like chief of staff. I don't think he could, he could get a, a, a cabinet position through. But it's not just Chris Christie. If, if in foreign policy, most Republican establishment people, on, on, in, in terms of foreign and defense policy, are basically jumping ship and saying that they would endorse Hillary Clinton. There are, uh, in the realm of foreign policy, uh, which is probably the most critical, I think he's going to have a tough time staffing, uh, uh, staffing at the senior levels. There's a bureaucracy, to be sure. But in terms of policy decisions at the senior levels, serious people to be part of it. I'm not sure what it's going to do, but he, you know, he said stupid things with regard to NATO, uh, that he, he uh, wouldn't necessarily respect this Article 5, which is sort of joint action. If, if one is attacked, they're all attacked. He, he said he, he would challenge that if uh, countries like uh, Estonia should be encroached upon by Russia. He's not clear what he would do. He's already talked about befriending and, and having good or better relations with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he suggested that Japan and or effectively that Japan and South Korea perhaps should should no longer be under the UN nuclear umbrella, which means in the face of China, they're going to have to start thinking about getting their own weapons. There's some really stupid things that he has said, and that's the realm I'm most concerned about. Domestically, very little of his promises, even if there's a kind of theoretical consistency to them, they aren't going to get through because Congress is just broken. What is required in the U.S. government right now to make things better is compromise and negotiation. The two parties getting together and splitting the differences on issues. Trump is only going to make a bad situation worse. Will, after election, uh, and, and let's, well, who knows who wins. Um, it's looking more and more like Hillary. And we'll, we'll, there'll be more, more polls coming out. I, I frankly think he's going to do worse and worse in these polls, in these debates to come, but we'll see. What, do, 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 do any, well, does American politics, do, 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 do people learn from this? Do they take from this playbook on, on what to do and what not to do? How does the Republican Party recover from this? After the 2012 election, uh, there was, in fact, a commission to look into what the Republican do, uh, Republicans do to sort of deal more effectively with the uh, an ever-changing electorate, more minorities, particularly Hispanics. And they had a series of proposals. And, in fact, their members in Congress have totally ignored all of that because members of Congress do not get elected in the way they do in Canada. They're not under the, the coattails of, of the party leadership. 
we're seeing elected congressional districts drawn up in such a way to be gerrymandered so that most Republicans feel, if anything, they should be even more extreme ideologically. And that to a certain extent, it's true of the, the Democrats as well, rather than compromising. Now, the, the, the problem, it, the situation is broken, and it's going to take leadership that people respect. But whether Hillary wins or, or, or Trump wins in this election, the president is going to be severely harmed. He's going to have well less than 50% of the vote because of the third-party candidacies. And people aren't going to take either of them seriously. Whoever gets elected, it's going to get worse. I would suggest with Trump, though, especially on foreign policy, it's going to get a lot, lot, lot more worse. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, again, let me add, uh, if people oh, yes, are interested McMaster. in the audience, we have a, uh, there's an event at McMaster on the 24th, Monday the 24th of October in the um, Information Technology Building, Room 137. I'll be on a panel, among others, participating in a discussion of the U.S. election. That's October 24th at McMaster. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Bye-bye now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The pound has dropped in value against the euro after uh, Prime Minister Theresa May set a deadline for Britain to exit the European Union. What does this all mean? Jonathan Tong is with us, Director of Postgraduate Research Politics, University of Liverpool, and is with us now. Hi, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. So what is what stage are we at now? What has happened with this announcement from your Prime Minister? Well, we've got a bit of clarity as to when the process of departure from the European Union is going to begin. Um, it's going to start early in 2017. Uh, and so the process of leaving the European Union, the completion of Brexit, should be done by the first part of 2019. It's a two-year process, so two years of disengagement. What's not clear is what sort of disengagement will take place. We know we're leaving the European Union. What's not clear is what will replace it, whether you have a hard Brexit in which we become like any other country uh, outside the European Union, trading with, with the European Union on a basis of being a member of the World Trade Organization, or whether you have soft Brexit in which we sail very close to the perimeter of the European Union, we have access to the EU single market, and we accept EU control over our immigration. And the smart money, I think, is on a hard Brexit here because it's quite clear that a lot of the British population are vexed about the immigration issue. And the European Union has made clear that if you want access to their market on a favourable basis, you've got to accept freedom of movement of labour. Um, and it looks like the British public are not going to accept that. So, frankly, we're heading for a, a, a big, deep, hard Brexit rather than a soft uh, eu light style Brexit. And all of that has to be determined prior to March of 2017, correct? That's correct, yeah. You've got two years of, of uh, engagement to disengage, as it were. That's tricky, it's particularly tricky for the UK, because we're not allowed to conduct trade deals or conclude trade deals with other countries because we formally remain members of the European Union until 2019. So it's a bit of a straitjacket, really. What will happen is there'll be broad... Um, talks with other countries about the parameters of the trade deal, but nothing can be concluded by Britain within that two-year period. That's not to say we could conclude a trade deal anyway. Trade deals take ages. They take years to conclude. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the deals that, that Canada's been involved in, they can take you know, the best part of a decade to actually wrap up. So, But, but it's difficult, and clearly there's a crisis of confidence I think, in, in the British economy, certainly in sterling. Sterling's at, at a 31-year low against the U.S. dollar. It's at a three-year low against the euro. 
Um, so, frankly, the city of London is very, very nervous about about us now triggering the disengagement process. But the Prime Minister Theresa May has made clear at the Conservative Party conference, which is taking place this week, that Brexit means Brexit, and there's no second referendum, there's no second chances. We're, we're on our way out. So it's really about the deal we get now, rather than whether we can reverse the process of disengagement from the European Union. Uh, during the uh, Brexit vote, or shortly after the Brexit vote, the value of the pound dropped and people were, were worried about stability, this sort of thing. Uh, it soon corrected itself. Uh, obviously, the pound has dropped with the mention of this deadline. Uh, do you think that will continue, or do you think, just like the previous announcement, that it will, it will eventually just level out? There'll be some sort of a yo-yo uh, effect takes place, but the fact is the pound has not recovered to the levels that it was at pre the vote to leave the European Union way back on the, the 23rd of June. Yes, the pound rallied to some extent, and certainly there's not been economic catastrophe um, since the, the Brexit vote. But the fact is we haven't left yet. And as soon as it became very clear from Theresa May that um, uh, we were going ahead full steam with disengagement, the pound suffered again. So, you know, the pound is at a very low level. Now, obviously, that helps British exports at present, but... Um, how low could sterling go? I, I don't think we've seen the worst yet. I think it will continue to fall. And you, know, it, you can argue it was overvalued in the first place, but I don't think that sterling can take much more of a battering. It's not going to recover, I think, ever to the pre-June 23rd, the pre-referendum level that it enjoyed. Now that the announcement has been made of, of what happens moving forward, is, this big, is the biggest challenge between now and March of 2017 to come up with what this deal is going to look like, or is it going to be between 27, 20, uh, 2017 and 19 where this actually gets hammered out? I think that the big thing is to, is to hammer out the terms of the deal. That assumes that there's going to be unity of purpose, though, A, within the British government, and there are clear divisions already between some of the ministers involved. Boris Johnson, who would probably, as Foreign Secretary, like an EU-light deal, a soft uh, landing uh, out of the EU, versus hardliners like David Davis uh, and Liam Fox, who's the minister charged with with the task of of negotiating our exit. so there'll probably be discord, I suspect, within the British government over the next couple of years and divisions among ministers. Then there's a second issue of whether there will be disagreements amongst the European Union members as to what sort of deal Britain is given. Mm. Because countries like Ireland and Germany, who export very heavily, particularly Ireland, but not exclusively so, will want to treat Britain fairly lightly and won't want anything such as punitive tariffs on, on goods. Other European Union countries, such as France, frankly can't wait to see the back of the UK and they'd be quite happy for a, a very tough deal to be conducted uh, with the UK. That's partly because of their own domestic difficulties where you've got a strong party, the Front National within France, who would happily leave the European Union um, and because France has always regarded Britain as a, as a nuisance, a bit of an awkward partner within the European Union anyway. And remember you've got to get a deal approved by the 27 remaining EU states at the end of the process. So mm. yeah, there's an awful long way to go. Is it? This is a, a two-year difficult road to travel both to the UK government and to the European Union. Uh, wow, quite a balancing act with the European Union because obviously they can't make it uh, too palatable for uh, the UK to leave. Otherwise, others will leave. Yet, on the other hand, they want, they want to be able to trade. Yeah, precisely. I mean, there will be a punitive element to whatever the European Union agrees because otherwise there'd be no point in having a European Union. If the European Union members don't trade on terms more favourable than 
those afforded to non-EU members, what would be the point of the European Union? So we're certainly going to be worse off. And the European Union, although Britain is, it, we are a big customer for the European Union, so it would be somewhat self-defeating to overdo it, the fact is we only represent about 12% of the European Union's overall exports. 88% of EU business is done with other states beyond the UK. So, you know, prosperity amongst other European Union countries doesn't hang or fall uh, on or their trade with the UK. Yes, we're a big customer, but we're no more uh, than, than a biggie amongst a, a whole series of international players. So, uh, you know, I don't think the terms are going to be good for the UK. Obviously, there's a lot of posturing at the moment where, you know, at the Conservative Party conference, there's an awful lot of grandstanding in which Theresa May, the Prime Minister, was talking tough. Philip Hammond, the, the Chancellor, was talking tough today, you know, about, you know, we're going to get this great deal, return sovereignty, and, and we're going to be, you know, we'll be tied the EU with if they try and punish us, that, that type of language will be heard. That's what party conferences are all about, you know, rallying the, the faithful behind a strong message. The reality will be rather different once the civil servants, both from the UK and from the European Union, get down to the serious work. You know, there, there is going to be plenty of horse trading. But Britain, although we do hold a few of the aces, uh, the fact is the bulk are held by the European Union. And, you know, this deal, I doubt that we're going to get a great deal from the European Union and we're not going to get any compromises in terms of access to the single market. Could the PM, could the Prime Minister have delayed this any longer? Would there have been any advantage to that, or was there pressure to, to start the process? No, I don't think Theresa May could have delayed it any longer. By saying she's going to go in perhaps April next year, that's about as long as she could have conceivably uh, delayed it. Um, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure coming from her own backbenchers on A, the timing, and B, the, um, uh, the nature of Brexit. The European Union was beginning to get impatient. You know, frankly, you know, a vote was taken. What, why carry on delaying when you've still got two years after the date is triggered mm. to actually negotiate the deal? So that simply wasn't a, a viable option. Theresa May has delayed it as long as she can. I mean, you know, what be inter- what's interesting is the fact she ruled out a second referendum because some people were hoping that once the deal was finalised by 2019, that its terms will be put to the British people so the British would have another vote right. in which we either accept the deal uh, or we, we vote to stay in the European Union, but she's categorically ruled that out. So we're not going to get a second chance on this particular issue. So that's it. It's over then. It is over, yeah. We've simply got to wait for the terms. Obviously, the terms are, are, are regarded as disastrous. Theresa May will be facing a general election anyway the year after. Um, but given the current state of the British Labour Party, which you know is, is hugely unpopular in the polls, um, she appears fairly bomb-proof, fairly insulated in terms of, of, of what she negotiates, because it's not as if the Conservative Party is under any political pressure um, from the Labour Party at the moment. So, you know, she's got a free hand in, in, in that respect, but Britain's not going to get a second chance. Um, the only party that has come out and said, you know, we, we, we're not going to accept the EU withdrawal is the Liberal Democrats, but they've only got eight members of Parliament. So um, the Scottish National Party, of course, will try and delay it in Scotland. They argue that Scotland, but they make the point Scotland voted to remain in the European Union, and why should they have to exit mm. with the rest of the UK? So there may still be some legal and political battles ahead, some sort of die-in-the-ditch type stuff from, from, from the Scots in particular. But it, it's looking like... Um, the actual exit from the EU is looking like a done deal. The terms of that deal, though, there's an awful lot to play for in that respect. Jonathan Tong has been with us, Director of Postgraduate Research, Politics University of Liverpool. Jonathan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. 
Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder to Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you. Well, Marvin, thanks for joining us as always. How will we look back at this 10, 15, 20 years from now, do you think? Hmm, that is a very good question. Uh, assuming that Britain leaves, I think many people are going to see it as a missed opportunity and a, a stumble towards a, a unified Europe. Um, Europe had every about 25 years or so had a battle. They fought each other, whether it was the First World War or the Second World War, but if you go back into the 1800s and 1700s, everyone wanted the other person's little slice of territory. So we've been through one of the longest peaceful periods in Europe's history. And in terms of a trading bloc, uh, Europe, European Union, is bigger than the United States. It's bigger than China. Uh, this was why they put it together. It made great sense at the time. Now, there we knew there was going to be hiccups. We knew it wasn't going to be perfect, but it was better than what they had. And I think this is a bit of short-sightedness on the part of Britain. We'll probably see it as an opportunity lost. What can we learn from this exercise? What can the rest of the world learn from this exercise? Well, as you know, uh, periodically we talk about North American getting together. Why don't we bring Mexico and the United States and Canada under some sort of a loose confederation? Um, we share trading interests, and maybe we could even move to one currency rather than having the, the cost of exchange. You know, if you buy anything in the United States, the exchange back and forth seems to hurt. Uh, but we see from this the problems. You can't just form an economic union if you don't also think about the other things. And in this situation, uh, one of the things that upset people were the sort of the social aspects. One, losing control of just who you admitted as a potential citizen to Britain. And then two, this free flow of people. So here we had a refugee situation. No one even imagined that 20 years ago, 30 years ago. As those refugees flooded into Europe, it wasn't fair for Hungary to take them all or Greece to take them all, but then how do you respond? Uh, the part of the Greece problems over the years has been that Greece was used to a more generous retirement plan and retiring earlier and maybe maybe not even voluntarily paying your taxes, uh, which was very anathema to other parts of, of Europe. So those social programs started to undermine the European Union. It wasn't really the economics. Uh, how can this deal possibly move forward and benefit everyone? I mean, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be hits and misses on both sides here. How long is it going to take to hammer this out? Well, I think the first thing Britain should do is hire Donald Trump because yeah. <laughs> he claims he can get a deal where everybody wins. So that would be kind of fun to watch. Um, you know, I, I, you're right, hits and misses. So what Britain said today when they announced they were going to uh, pull the trigger by March of next year, and by the way, they may pull it earlier than March, is the first thing they were going to do was adopt all European Union laws, bring them all in to Britain, and then throw out the ones they don't like. So that's going to take a certain amount of time. Then they have to figure out this trade deal, and everyone's concerned about the businesses in Britain, in particular the financial center. London is one of the world's big financial centers, and it became that because many companies wanted to locate there as their entree into Europe. If Britain is leaving, then what is that entree? Is there any preferential way, or are you considered an outsider again? So the sooner they start to hammer these things out, and I think why Theresa May made the announcement today, even though it's six months from now when they pull the trigger, is maybe some preliminary discussions could go. The sooner businesses can get security about what's in or what's not in the deal, the sooner we'll have more economic stability. But I would think for the next year anyway, it's going to be like a roller coaster, ripples through a pond, some good days, some bad days, and everything in between. Uh, you talked about this being or becoming, it started as an economic deal, became more about social issues. 
Uh, can, can the UK control its social issues and still benefit from the economic value? Yeah, see, that's, those are good questions, and, and this is a bit like unscrambling the egg. Once, yeah. you, once you connected to the continent in a way that you had never connected before, how, how can you pick and choose? Like, I'll give you another example, Scott. Many people who voted in the referendum said, I'm tired of the rules being set in Brussels. Yeah. We need to set our own rules. Well, point to me the rules that Brussels passed that you don't want yourself. If you're worried about environmental policy or, again, say, some other social policies, many of them made good sense. So, yes, I know they came from Brussels, but probably you would have adopted something similar anyway. What are the ones that really, really get you upset? And when you point to it, the thing that comes up over and over again, kind of, again, the same thing that drives Donald Trump's campaign, immigration, people who are into our country, who shouldn't be into our country, uh, they're not like us, and during difficult economic times, why are they getting my job? I want my job back. I'm not sure how easy that is to solve. Will history prove this to be a mistake and then say in 30 years we'll be right back here again with them creating some sort of other union? Well, I think you've got a good point. I think history will see this as a bit of a mistake. Now, keep in mind that she's announced this. You already heard from your previous guest that we're not sure what Scotland's going to do, even Northern Ireland. This could trigger other things. For instance, it could trigger your, uh, Irish reunification. It could trigger another referendum in Scotland with Scotland leaving, yeah. both of which are not necessarily good for, for Britain. Uh, and then what emerges from that, you know, so this has certainly changed the course of history. I think they're going to see it as a mistake, and we're dealing with issues that we didn't have to deal with, like your Irish reunification, like Scottish independence. Didn't have to deal with it now. Um, and I think that's why we're going to see this mistake. Now, economically, yes, I think ultimately the world is doing something that's global. We're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, free trade with other places. Canada signed a free trade deal with the European Union. There, there's more of this going on. So to take a step backwards, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Everyone's going to the left, and you're now heading to the right. Again, it's like Donald Trump. I don't think you can stop it. I think what you can do, though, by getting involved is you can shape it. And putting this stick in the sand says maybe Britain's going to take a step off the world stage for a little while. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. We'll keep watching. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.